listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Bob. How you doing? I'm pretty good. I'm on holiday and feeling good. Good. And you're in, uh, I gather you're in New Orleans, which is relevant to, to what we're going to talk about, as you know. Definitely, yeah. It's the, the scene of intrigue. So, yeah. So, talk. let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. This is the Non-Zero Podcast. You're Jefferson Morley, publisher of the JFK Facts Newsletter. Yes. I'm I'm very excited about this conversation uh, because so I. I only I only recently descended down the JFK assassination rabbit hole. Okay, uh, I mean, I and why you haven't until now? Well, we can talk about that, uh, but um, and how I did descend finally. But um, what's interesting about you to me is, like some other people, you know, you've spent a lot of time thinking about this. Right. Uh, you do think. Probably, although you're careful, I think, about drawing firm conclusions. You do think probably there was a conspiracy. Probably some people from the, in the U.S. government uh, were involved. Unlike a lot of people who fit that description, you're, you're also a very accomplished journalist. Uh, you've written a number of highly regarded books, uh, some of which are relevant to this. One of them is called The Ghost, about yes. uh, James Jesus Angleton, uh, who figures in in the story a little, who was head of CIA counterintelligence. Another one called Our Man in Mexico, about Winston Scott, CIA yes. station chief, who also figures into this story. Uh, mm -hmm. A book called CIA and JFK, The Secret Assassination Files, obvious relevance. Uh, right. A book called Scorpion's Dance, The President, The Spy Master, and Watergate, not so relevant, um, but, uh, but not as relevant as the others, but... Um, uh, unless I've got that wrong. Do I have that wrong? No, no. no it, less relevant than the others. But the third book, Scorpion's Dance, is about the CIA and Watergate and really about Dick Helms and Dick Nixon. And I would say that it's the aftershocks of JFK assassination reverberate okay. through the Nixon era and through the politics between the White House and the CIA in that era. So there is a kind of JFK echo in Scorpion's Dance. And Helms was the CIA director at the time of the assassination. He was uh, the deputy director at the time of the assassination. Okay. He was the chief of the clandestine service, the directorate of plans. And then okay. he later became, three years later, became director himself. Okay. Uh, so anyway, uh, you also have worked at a number of respected publications. You were at the Washington Post in the early 90s, and there you broke some stories that have expanded our understanding of the whole assassination thing. Um, yeah. You were at the Nation for All. You were at the New Republic right before I got there in 1988. You had, you had left uh, not so long ago, I think. When did you leave the New Republic? I was at the New Republic from 1983 to 1987. Okay. Oh, yes. Um, so I think we first met when I was like coming back to the office to see people and you were at the New Republic. I think that's true. We also, did we not play basketball together at one point? At... Um, at the at the St. Albans gym where there was a Sunday night uh, game that, that yes, came did. into being after you left, but it was basically a New Republic game. Yes, and we played basketball a couple of times up there in um, in Calorama. Oh, that too. So at the outdoor court. Maybe I'm conflating memories on the uh, court street. I'm a court uh -huh. street. Uh, wasn't it? Oh, maybe not. Forget. Look, let's get let's get down <laughs> to business here. Okay. Uh, well, one thing maybe this hints at is that both of us are old enough to actually remember JFK's assassination. I think you were a year younger than me. You were five. I was six. 
I've heard you say that when you think of the assassination, you think of watching TV. That's what I think of. I just see an image of the TV uh, and uh, not much else. I don't have very clear uh, recollection. Um, I, yeah. I also remember the Warren Commission, and that's a good way maybe to lead into this. So I thought, since since not everyone is old enough uh, to remember the thing, and some people have maybe not paid that much attention to it, I thought one way to establish a, a grounding of basic facts would be to um, just very quickly uh, summarize the official story with and underscore the parts of the official story that you think are, are true, you still think are true. And by the official story, I mean basically what emerged from the Warren Commission. As you've noted a number of times, right. Lyndon Johnson uh, very much one, it made a decision fairly early in the aftermath of the assassination to just basically convince the American public it was a simple story, one fanatic gone haywire, no conspiracy. It's not that he was covering anything up that he knew about. It's just that for various reasons, he didn't think the nation needed uh, a, a more complicated story. He didn't think he needed a more complicated story. I mean, one thing he was worried about was was uh, being thought complicit because obviously he benefits from the assassination. He's from Texas where it happened, but he had yeah. other reasons too, right? Yeah. Well, so so to summarize the official story, I mean, this is what people understood at the time because this is what the authorities said. And there was no obvious, well, there was no countervailing point of view about what had happened. The president went to Texas for a political trip. He was greeted by warm crowds in Dallas as the motorcade was finishing and passing through an area called Dealey Plaza. Shots ring out. The president is mortally is wounded in the back and the head, and Texas Governor John Connolly is wounded. A man named Lee Harvey Oswald is arrested about 70 minutes later. He worked in a building overlooking the uh, the motorcade route, and um, he was charged with shooting the president. He denied that, and then he was killed in custody. And so where you're talking only, about- Only two days later by- Two days by, later, yes. By sketchy nightclub owner, Jack Ruby. By, by, by Jack Ruby. So when you talk about what Lyndon Johnson wanted, what we now know is what Johnson decided on November 24th, um, the day Oswald was killed. That afternoon, Johnson told Nicholas Katzenbach, the deputy assistant attorney general, we have to convince the, the public that Oswald acted alone and he has no Confederates at large. And J. Edgar Hoover sent a memo to his people the next day saying the same thing. We have to convince the public that Oswald was the real assassin. I always thought that was a very interesting formulation on Hoover's part. Mm. That mm. guy who's dead, he was the real one, not the fake assassins that everybody's thinking about. Although you don't so, think that you don't think Hoover himself was in on any conspiracy, right? There's no reason. I mean, Hoover did not want an investigation. And why Hoover didn't want an investigation is an interesting question. I think that what Hoover was worried about was that he was going to get blamed. And what Hoover had in his pocket was he knew what the public didn't know, which was there was a certain group of CIA officers who were up to their eyeballs with the accused assassin. Now, mm -hmm. CIA played dumb on November 22nd. And when the FBI came and said, what do you know about this guy, Oswald? They said, we have nothing on him. 
Okay. And that's when the JFK cover up began. The president had only had not even gotten back to Washington and the CIA was already playing dumb about Lee Harvey Oswald. So the but the point about Johnson and what we have come to understand at that time, I'm going to tell you why the official story almost certainly isn't true. But at that time, people believed it. You know, Johnson uh, rallied Earl Warren, the great liberal icon, and Johnson wanted an investigation with a liberal on it because his party, the Democratic Party, did not trust J. Edgar Hoover because he was a reactionary racist and, you know, was very much opposed to what the Democratic Party stood for. So, so Hoover and Johnson wanted this thing to go away. That dead guy did it. Don't worry about it. And here's a commission. And the commission basically delivered what Johnson and Hoover wanted, which was to rubber stamp that conclusion. This one guy did it. I mean, they developed a much more elaborate biography and they, you know, illuminated who Oswald was, and they kind of prosecuted Oswald. And that's what the Warren Commission report is. It's a prosecutorial statement. Of, it's a prosecution of a shooter. That guy mm-hmm. shot, we're prosecuting. And mm-hmm. they wrapped it up with a bow and said to the American people, you know, that's what happened. Now, there's a couple of important things to understand about this story and about the whole miasma of conspiracy theories that surrounds it, okay? And one is there's this popular belief, especially in elite media circles, that, you know, this was a cut and dried homicide case. And these crazy conspiracy theorists came along and they convinced people, you know, that there was something else going on. And this is a disease in American politics, right? This JFK conspiracy business. But the important thing to understand, Bob, is there were a couple of opinion polls taken in November late November 1963. The country's in shock and the pollsters immediately go into the field and how are people processing this? What do they think happened? There was this obviously world historic event. And there were two polls statistically valid done in Dallas and nationwide. And one of the questions was, do you think more than one person was involved? And in the Dallas, it was 66% and nationwide, it was 70%. Okay. Who thought that more than one person was involved? Now, at this time, the White House, the FBI, Secret Service, Dallas police, and all the media are unanimous in saying this one guy did it and he had no Confederates who are at large. Okay, so there were no conspiracy theorists. So it wasn't conspiracy theorists who talked the public into being skeptical of the official story of one man alone. Mm-hmm. It was the circumstances of the crime. Okay, so that's an important thing to understand about. That's where JFK conspiracy theories come from not from conspiracy theorists, but from the circumstances of the crime, which are, to put it mildly, bizarre. Okay, let me, and let me make a distinction. Um, there's the question of whether Oswald was the only shooter. Right. And there's the question of whether he was part of a larger conspiracy or there were other people uh, you know, involved in the orchestration of the shooting, the encouraging of the shooting, whatever. Right. Strictly speaking, those are separate questions. Now, it, it tends to be the case uh, that, I mean, a lot of people who think there was a conspiracy uh, involving maybe the mob, maybe the CIA, uh, mm-hmm. maybe uh, anti-Castro activists, maybe all three, um, uh, they, many of them do believe there was more than one shooter. And there's a whole question of like how many bullets and so on. But strictly speaking, it could have been the case that Oswald was the only shooter, but he was maybe just subtly encouraged to do it right by people who wanted it done. All of this is so. So so these are, strictly speaking, two different questions. I think you think 
that uh, he was not have been the shooter and may not even have been a shooter. I want to delve into that because that's the part of it I, I, I don't understand very well, the theorizing there. But you also believe uh, that other people were involved, uh, probably, you know, maybe people from the CIA who had reasons to want Kennedy out of the picture, possibly with some sort of mob involvement. That part of the story, I, I really, the more I've learned, um, the more I've I, I've seen reason to be suspicious. There's yeah. just a lot of weird connections uh, yeah. that, that make one suspicious. Okay. So let's unpack that a little bit. So was Oswald a shooter? I mean, I tend to doubt it, but quite, it's possible. It's possible. And I, do you, you know, think, I do you think that shots were fired from the sixth floor of the book depository where he worked? There was a rival rifle that the police said that was found there that had his fingerprints on them, even though they weren't necessarily recent fingerprints. He had ordered a gun like that from under a false name and so on. Uh, so, and I would add, by yes, the way, I think, I think shots were fired from the Texas. Okay. You do believe that. And by the way, and the other question is, do you think he, he brought the rival to the scene? Because the guy who drove him to work that day testified or told somebody that Oswald had like a long bag that he claimed contained curtain rods, right? Yeah. Isn't that true? Yes. And and Buell Fraser, that guy, says that the the carton, the package that he saw Oswald walking away with that morning, the morning of November 22nd, Buell Fraser was a friend of Oswald's and drove him to work each day because Oswald didn't have a car. So Oswald got out of the car that day. He told Fraser that he was head curtain rods. And when he walked away, Fraser saw him and he was said Oswald was holding it under his arm. And there's no way that a, the rifle could have been in that package and being held the way Buell Fraser said it was held. So Buell Fraser's story cast out on whether Oswald. What was it about the way he was holding it? I, I, we don't have to get into that. Let, yeah, let no, me no, just, I mean, the, the point the point being that the chain of possession of that rifle and the mm -hmm. fingerprints and the crime scene, I mean, but it's a very, you know, it's a very weak chain of possession and it's very difficult to determine yeah. what was going on. It would not stand up in court. I would put yeah, it that. Yeah, way. but I would I would say I would say two things. Um, first of all, the obs I've also heard that this guy, Buell, whatever, said the, the, the thing wasn't as long as that rifle. Yeah. And yet it was and yet it was long enough that Oswald had to say it was curtain rods. Let me just my main point is he is he is recounting observations that he made when the thing Oswald was carrying had no significance to him. So I'm like wondering how much attention did he really pay? To me, the overwhelmingly significant fact is that. He had driven Oswald to work many days, and it so happens that on November 22nd, Oswald is carrying this long thing. And I do not believe that this guy happened to pay super close attention to it when he thought it was curtain rods, including yeah. how he carried it. No, and so and so and so Oswald could have been bringing a, a rifle into the into the into the book and deposit. still not been the one who used it. That's possible if he was told to do it or something. But anyway, go ahead. Continue with what you you think. Well, so 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 then, I mean, we're talking very specifically about the crime scene, what we know about the crime scene, what the witness testimony tells us. So um, shots are fired. People look up. They see people in this see a figure up there. And earlier in that 15 minutes before, somebody had seen two people, 
two men on the sixth floor of the of the of the book depository. So um, uh, the shots ring out. The president is wounded. The motorcade rushes off to the hospital. Um, a policeman comes rushing up into the school book depository and uh, rushes in with the head of the place. And they run upstairs and that, where the lunchroom is, and they see Oswald sitting there. And the, and the cop says, who's that? And he says, that's Oswald. That's Lee. He works here. And they run up the stairs and go and keep going up because he's kind of been spoken for. So the policeman said that he got there within two minutes of the gunfight. Mm -hmm. Now, if Oswald was in the sixth floor window, he had to put his rifle down, walk across the sixth floor, go to the stairway, descend five flights, go into the second floor lunchroom, sit, get a Coke, sit down and be there when the cops rush in. And he wasn't ruffled or, you know, out of breath or, you know, there was there was since there was nothing suspicious about him, they rushed right past him. And then, ironically, the next guy to come along was Jim Lehrer. A radio reporter. Wait, the guy who became the Neil Lehrer guy. Yeah. Yeah. Who, 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 who became the PBS NewsHour uh, co-host and then host. Okay. And what, yeah. what happened? I didn't know that. Go go ahead. He he, he 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 brushes past Oswald as Oswald goes out of the of the building and they're rushing in to find out what had happened. But anyway, so the thing about could Oswald covered, have covered that ground from the sixth floor window down the stairs and into the lunchroom in two minutes? Yeah. You know, maybe. The, if he's walking fast and is very calm and, you know, cool and collected, does that possible? The problem is, is that there were a bunch of other people on the stairway that day. And it's the only stairway. And, and for women. There is an elevator. There is a freight elevator. I've learned a lot over this, <laughs> since okay. November 22nd of this year. <laughs> there is a freight up. And reportedly, Oswald had at 12 o'clock, half an hour before all this happens, asked for it to be sit up to the sixth floor where he might be able to use it. Right. So I don't rule out the possibility that Oswald was up there in the window. I think it's unlikely based on all the things we talked about. But because if you take the elevator, you don't come out at the cafeteria. You don't? So, Okay, no. so so it, that would have required more time for him to get there, you know. So, so you've been to the have you you've been to the repository clearly? Yeah. Yes, yes. Okay. So you know, so so I look around at that, and you know, I think it's it's possible that I was in the window. I think it's unlikely. In any case, I think the totality of the evidence, Oswald's not the intellectual author of JFK's death. I put it that way. Mm -hmm. Even if he was firing a gun, it was not his thing, right? It was, I believe that it was a more sophisticated covert operation and which was designed to make Oswald what he said he was, a patsy. Mm -hmm. Now, it's there's other explanations that I think, you know, that are possible. And one is that, you know, the CIA wasn't manipulating Oswald. They were, in fact using him for some other purposes. And then he up and shot the president and they had to hide the whole thing that they were interested in this guy because it looked so bad because they just but screwed that it up. They had failed to see it coming, in other words. Right, right. right. So, so there's exactly, I mean, there's two, let me just say broadly, the CIA's involvement is in a certain sense, very extensive. Yes. Oswald was, and I assume you'll agree, he was a committed uh, communist. Ideologically, he was a he was a communist. That's what drew him. 
you agree with the official story? Do you? I, I'm just asking you know, that that's what drew him to the Soviet Union. He spent two years there before the assassination. Yeah. Do you? Yes. Oswald, Oswald was a self-taught, a, a smart guy with with no schooling, but a lot of native intelligence who was reading, you know, who read Das Kapital at 15. You know, he uh -huh. was into Marxism as a as a kind of autodidact kid. And he, when he went into the Marines, you know, he had left wing opinions and the other Marines kind of kidded him about that. And um, but he was smart. Um, everybody acknowledged that um, he learned Russian quite quickly and quite well. Russian speakers were impressed with Oswald's Russian. Um, so, um, yeah, I think Oswald had. a Yes, he was. Now, you know, when you say a committed communist, I mean. Those formulations when describing Lee Harvey Oswald are, are, are pretty propagandistic. If you look at what Oswald said in the summer of 1963 about Castro, he's not a raving Marxist-Leninist ideologue. He's kind of a, you know, um, a, a, a liberal, soft-spoken American liberal. Leave, leave Castro alone. You know, they're having yeah, a Although that could be part of the way he wants to position himself. But but uh, I want to get to that soon, to okay. all those interviews he did in New Orleans and so on about, about yes. this. But yes. the, so, my main question is, uh, let me tell you what my main question is. There are people who would say, look, it was a setup from the beginning. The CIA sent Oswald over to, this, to the Soviet Union. If, if the government there had accepted him as its spy, he would have been a double agent because the CIA was running the whole thing and he was a CIA agent. But I'm, I, what I'm saying is, do, do you actually, in this case, believe the official story that actually he had this interest in communism, some degree of commitment to it, and that's what drove him to the Soviet Union in whatever it was, 1960 or whenever it was? 1959. 1959. Yeah, I, I, I think genuine impulse, you know, propelled him there. But that mm -hmm. doesn't mean that he wasn't assisted. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you a very interesting story that came, just came out, Bob. Um, on the 60th anniversary, the, the Finnish intelligence service released their file on Oswald. Mm -hmm. In 1964, the Finnish intelligence service had asked, been asked to determine how Oswald got to Helsinki. Oswald took a boat from the, from the, the United States to England, flew from England to, uh, 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 what, and, and we don't know what happened. We don't know how he got to Helsinki, and the Warren Commission was never able to determine that. The Finnish intelligence service checked all their sources and determined that he was not on any passenger manifest for any ferry or the or the one flight that arrived that night. And so, you know, how did Oswald get to Helsinki? And the larger question, and per you know your the CIA's interest, this guy is a twenty-year-old dyslexic high school dropout, and he picks the one European capital where you can get a visa quickly to the mm -hmm. Soviet Union, the only one. Mm -hmm. If he had gone to any other European capital, he would have sat for months trying to get a visa to the Soviet Union. He got one within a couple of days in Finland. So, you know, and we don't know how he got there. So some people say the CIA did have a false defectors program and mm -hmm. defectors were watched very carefully. Mm -hmm. um, so was Oswald a false defector? I think, you know, he, he I think he was probably an assisted defector. And you, you put him out there and you see what happens. And, you know, uh, maybe he brings something back. Maybe he finds something. Maybe they approach him. You know, uh, now 
the people who I, I became friends with a man who was friends with Oswald in Minsk in 1960, a man named Ernest Titovitz, who's the a Russians, doctor. the Soviets sent him to Minsk where he worked in a radio factory or something. Yes. That's what Oswald did for a while. Yeah, the Soviet authorities basically was kind of a propaganda coup. You know, here's a comrade from the West. He's choosing our system over their system. So mm -hmm. they let him come in. They did watch him very carefully because they thought he might be a false defector. Titovitz, um, Ernest Titovitz wrote a book about Oswald in the 1990s, and he said that he interviewed a lot of the people who worked on the surveillance of Oswald, former security types. And he said that they said that among the Soviet intelligence people, they didn't think Oswald was a fake defector. He didn't act like he was trying to collect information. Mm -hmm. So be that as it may, the important point about all this, Bob, is, and this is where you have to go back to the Warren Commission report. Oswald was of high-level U.S. intelligence interest for four years before President Kennedy was killed. The Warren Commission told the American people, we didn't know much about the guy, okay? And that's, that is kind of the big lie at the heart of the Warren Commission. The CIA knew far, 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 far more about Lee Harvey Oswald on November 21st, 1963, than they ever told the American people, and they still haven't come clean right. on that. They, and so this is the core issue as far as I'm concerned. Now, let and, me say one thing. One other thing. Can I, can I center on that one point? Don't forget what yeah. you're going to say. But to me, this is a, part of the challenge of figuring this thing out is, you're right, the CIA paid extraordinary attention to him. Shortly after he gets in, into the Soviet Union, they start reading all his mail, which, strictly yeah. speaking, probably isn't uh, legal. Then when he comes back to the U.S. and what they should do is completely hand him off to the FBI, even if he's going to stay under surveillance, they don't let go. They keep they keep following. And then uh, so there's this extensive surveillance. And I mean, it's 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 intense. And then after the assassination, they lie about it and cover it up. The challenge is that both of these things, as you kind of alluded to, have in principle innocent explanations. In other words, look, this guy is going over to the Soviet Union. He's a communist. He wants to become their spy. Of course, we're going to keep tabs on him, including after he comes back, because who knows who knows whether he succeeded in becoming their spy. And then, uh, of course, we're going to cover it up after the assassination, because it would be too embarrassing to say we were following this guy all the time and didn't see this coming. So that to me, that's a big part of the kind of epistemological challenge here now. There is other suggestive stuff I want to get into for sure that just seems, some of it just seems a little too weird to be coincidental, but go ahead and say what you were going to say or comment on that or whatever. To, to the, I'm going to say two things. To the latter point, okay, this is the, base, the scenario is the Warren Commission's basically right. This guy, Lee Oswald, comes up, gets up there in the sixth floor window takes a few shots at the president for who knows what reason. He's kind of crazy. He's kind of nuts. He's kind of leftist. Um, and the government settles on the lone gunman scenario because they can't tell the real story, which is the CIA was watching this guy all along and he just pulled off this feet, this unbelievable feat, you know, under their noses. Okay. Mm -hmm. now, there's a couple of problems with that. Okay. First of all, there's nothing. And I stress nothing in the JFK records collection in which a CIA official ever expresses any kind of thought like that. Nobody ever says, holy shit, we knew about this. Mm -hmm. And so don't, you know, 
you know, there's no there's no trace of that, of any CYA type memoranda about, oh, my God, how did he do this? And, and a lot you, of documents have come out and you'd think they'd be happy for that one to come out. Now, they haven't released as many yes. as Congress seemed to mandate. And, right. and that's a whole issue of yours. But a lot of documents have come out and you'd think they'd be fine with that one coming out, an innocent explanation of why they were covering up now that everybody knows they were covering up. Yeah. And so and so, yeah. And, and, and that's the other thing is, you know, given the face of, you know, extraordinary public skepticism about the CIA's role in the story, you'd think that they could say, look, you know, the Cold War, you know, we apologize. You know, there would be a way to explain it. Right. We've never seen anything like that. So mm -hmm. th that's why I tend to think like, yeah, I mean, given the gaps in the knowledge that we have, you know, I, I, I don't rule it out. Just like I don't rule out that Oswald might have been up there in the sixth floor window. You know, I don't think it's a great chance, but I don't rule it. I don't say, oh, utterly impossible. The evidence doesn't tell you that. So so that's what it, so the question is like that's kind of the incompetence argument right which is we were watching this guy all along and um we just didn't know what he did and then we've hit it so we were incompetent and now we were hiding it many years later so uh -huh. that i know you know there's a lot of people who believe that and i would say that's almost becoming kind of the fallback or the, the the stated position of kind of my colleagues in the mainstream media, which is, yes, you know, yeah, there, there's a lot of cover up. But, you know, the basic story is still kind of true, but it's also true that there was government misconduct. Yeah. Okay? I, I don't see a lot of support for that. What I see is the CIA acting like it's trying to hide operational activity around Lee Harvey Oswald. Not that they're trying to hide incompetence. Okay. But, you know, that's that's be that as it may. I want to come back to another point because it's actually relevant and it follows here. When I talk about this, you know, CIA and all this, people say, oh, yeah, he thinks there's a CIA plot. He's a JFK conspiracy theorist. I want to stress right now, I do not think that, okay? CIA people might have been involved and it might have been a plot that originated with the Pentagon and the CIA was brought on to do covert type things. And in fact, I think that's a more likely explanation of the assassination is you have two operations that dovetail. A kinetic operation, which is to put force on the target and ensure its elimination, gunfire. And, 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 and by ensure its elimination, you're alluding to the fact that you think there was more than one, probably more than one shooter? Yeah. Okay. So there's a kinetic operation, and then there's a psychological warfare operation to arrange for the blame for this incident to yeah. fall on Castro. And we do know that the Pentagon was relying at a very high level on that type of false flag operation. So that's something we've learned in the last 20 well, years. So, the Pentagon had advanced that kind of plan. This, what is it, Operation yes. Northwoods? I mean, right. th this is so freaky, just briefly. Yes. Apparently, there was a plan that, so, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, was actually approved by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, right, and reached Kennedy's desk before he died, of course. And the plan, do I have that part right so far? I mean, it seems mind-blowing because the plan yes, is, the plan is, this is how we're going to get Castro. I guess this is after the Bay of Pigs had failed. And yes. of course, one one uh, simmering thing here, part of the backdrop here is, after the Bay of Pigs failed, Kennedy was not really in the mood for another fiasco. And as a result, was not nearly as militant toward Castro as many anti-Castro Cubans in America would have liked, as many in the U.S. government would have liked, 
And you think that they figured into all of this. So anyway, this or Operation Northwoods is it's like there is a plan achieved at the highest level, approved the highest level of the Pentagon. They're going to stage a false flag uh, operation that, well, it may involve killing some Americans. Okay, fine. But the key thing is we'll blame it on Castro and then we can invade. And here's the beauty of, of, of a theory that I think you take seriously. It, it's almost too good to be true. It's almost too cinematic to be true. But like Kennedy, first of all, is the guy who says, no, this is crazy, which he is. So there's right. a motivation to get him out of the way. And then part two is you turn him into Operation Northwoods. You, you, you say, he's the guy, he's the American we kill and blame it on Castro. And 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 then his successor will have no choice to uh, but to invade. Now, this is one reason maybe we should thank LBJ for insisting on on the on the simple version of the story where there's no conspiracy, because that kind of pressure was built. Well, I'll let you tell the story now, well, okay. but that, so, all so that was true, right? What I just said was true about Operation yes, North. No, North. no, no. And, 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 and Bob, you're absolutely right to focus on this. And, you know, people work on JFK and they develop a conspiracy theory and then they go out and they grab evidence and they you plug in the evidence into their conspiracy theory. And that's a fundamentally flawed approach. And I try to take a journalistic approach What's new? What have we what have we learned recently? And what have we learned since Oliver Stone's movie, for example? And Operation Northwoods is one of five important things that we learned. Operation Northwoods, like you said, approved by the Joint Chiefs after the Bay of Pigs in March 1962. And with the template that you describe, right? Stage a spectacular incident of violence in the United States, plane hijacking, uh, Mercury air aircraft crash. Uh, um, terror attack, shoot up a boat of refugees. These are all, you know, known Pentagon plans that they were thinking about. And so Kennedy is proposed this I, approach in March 1962, and he says, get out of my office. And he treats the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in a rather brusque manner. They come in saying, look, Mr. President, we have the solution to the problem. You don't have to worry about the Bay of Pigs anymore. We'll just send in the 82nd Airborne. And Kennedy says, no, I have to worry about Berlin. I'm not going to do this. I don't care. And he sends them away. Here's the important thing to understand about Northwoods. And this is what people have not focused on. Okay. The Joint Chiefs presented it in March 1962, and Kennedy rejected it rather brusquely. They knew that he did not approve this approach, and yet they reapproved Operation Northwoods on May 1st, 1963. So they were proposing this false flag Wait, operation. Without the president's authorization, they, they deemed it an, an officially approved policy? What they did was they approved it at the Joint Chiefs level, and they were proposing it to the Secretary of Defense to present to the president. This now, is what when, this is what date? This is May 1963. So, now, so they're hoping Kennedy will have second will 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 rethink the thing this time around or what? I mean, the paper trail, the, the paper trail is difficult to figure out because I don't know that Northwoods ever got to Kennedy's desk a second time. I okay. think McNamara might have told them, guys, this isn't going to fly and never even gave it to Kennedy. The Joint Chiefs policy over the summer mutates into we're we're ready to invade if there's a if Castro is um, you know removed from power basically if mm -hmm. Castro is assassinated so that was kind of the contingency plan going into 
1963. But the Joint Chiefs had approved the Northwoods approach. And you are absolutely right to say, you know, it does bear a certain resemblance to what happened on November 22nd. There was a spectacular attack on a U.S. target, and there was an immediate CIA effort or effort by CIA front groups and CIA assets to blame the crime on Castro. And right. so, you know, it, it sure looks like that. Now, the paper trail is obscure and it's hard to read. And, it, it you know, how far along did Northwood's planning get? You know, James Angleton wrote a paper for the Joint Chiefs three weeks after Northwood's was approved for the second time. So, Angleton was thinking about the Cuban target that summer. Um, so, you know, the government was mobilized. He, he, he is the chief of counterintelligence, the CIA, who, who authorized the reading of uh, Oswald's mail. So he's, he's in it from the beginning. Well, right. And, and so Angleton is interested in Cuba and Mexico City, where Oswald is about to go. Uh -huh. And... Um, uh, and he has controlled the, the Oswald file from the beginning. So, you know, this 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 new evidence. I mean, people say, oh, well, you know, that's not smoking gun proof of a conspiracy. No, but it's smoking gun proof that the whole story that people were told about this guy came out of nowhere and killed the president. I mean, that is so simple as to be fiction. And it's a cover story for this deep and abiding interest in Oswald. Now, who was involved in Oswald? Who was who was interested in Oswald? The chain of command, there's actually a lot of people at the top of the CIA who knew about Lee Harvey Oswald in October 1963. Very high-ranking people knew, you know, were familiar with his file and his biography. Right. So, you know, was one of those people running an operation involving Oswald? Well, Angleton's a candidate. I mean, he's keeping the file on him. And Angleton ran operations, and he ran operations in Cuba. So that part of the story, you know, is very murky. Um, Angleton's mm -hmm. role is quite suspicious. He's very furtive and avoids the Warren Commission. You know, he doesn't want it. They don't share what they knew about Oswald. And the Warren Commission, you know, was basically flying blind. They, you know, they had the CIA's assurances. We didn't know anything about mm -hmm. this guy. So that, that's what Dick Helm said under oath. But it was a lie. It was definitely, we can now say that. And here's the thing, Rob, it's like, no, nobody will say, but Morley's, you know, the CIA didn't lie to the Warren Commission about Oswald. Nobody will say that because the, the, the paper record is plain. It is mm -hmm. obvious that they lie. And so yeah. why? And so people say, oh, well, that's not smoking gun proof of conspiracy. Well, false statements by the government about the defendant in a homicide case are always, always relevant. And the lone gunman theory is based on the proposition that the government's false statements under oath about Oswald are simply not relevant. That's not a tenable argument. It's not a tenable argument. And so, you know, much has changed. We have learned a lot in the last 25 years. And the defenders of the official story basically say it's not smoking gun proof of a conspiracy. And so they never consider the new evidence. So mm -hmm. we have this impasse where there's a ton of new evidence, but you have an intellectual cohort in the government and in major media institutions who just won't look at the new evidence because it's actually, you know, it's a disturbing, you know, bad story. It doesn't look yeah. good for American institutions. It was a real failure. Okay. And so it's really destabilizing to sit down and think about 
the JFK story systematically. But that's where I think the evidence has delivered us. Okay, so why don't we move to New Orleans, where, as it happens, mm -hmm. you are now, and talk about uh, Oswald's time there just a few months uh, before the assassination. Now, by way of segue to that, yeah. uh, I want to—I said I'd tell you how I wound up going down the rabbit hole. Well, uh, this this past November twenty second was, of course, the sixtieth anniversary yeah. uh, of the assassination. And I noticed on Twitter, do you know who Paul Graham is, the Silicon Valley figure, very highly respected guy with over a million followers. He's this guy who started Y Combinator, that pioneering incubator that Sam Altman was president of before he started OpenAI and went there. Paul Graham is considered kind of a sage. He writes these essays or has written a bunch that are compiled, which are actually very good. Some are practical wisdom, some are business uh, philosophy, but very smart, very sober guy. And he tweeted on November 2nd, 22nd, something to the effect that like, you know, it shouldn't be considered disreputable to think that the CIA assassinated, was involved in the assassination of Kennedy, something like that. And and as it happens, I glanced at his feed like an hour ago and he had, he had uh, reiterated uh, uh, basically that uh, that idea that he thinks there was some kind of uh, conspiracy. So I saw that. And then I noticed that Rob Reiner has this, you know, the famous, uh, you know, movie director, actor, uh, this podcast series, Who Killed JFK, which you appear in, as you know, you're interviewed for it. Reiner has yeah. been on your podcast at JFK Facts. Yeah. I started listening to that got really intriguing. I should say, you know, I, I am taking Reiner's take with a little bit of a grain of salt. I don't think, I, I mean, I think the facts he marshals are by and large true. He's not a journalist. I think sometimes he's a little fast and loose with, with, with his conclusions, but, yeah. uh, but it's interesting. I, I would, I would encourage people not to take it as gospel, but I don't know if you, if, before no, no, we, no. I think that's right. And I, I mean, I think overall the show is very good. I think, the, you know, I, I like my contribution to it about Oswald and the CIA. Um, you know, I, in order to sell a big media project, you know, there's this in, inevitable business pressure to make it, to sex it up, mm -hmm. you know. And if you're going to sell, you know, a, 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 a big media project like Rob Reiner's trying to do, you know, you're going to do that. And and I think that, you know, he lets he accepts some evidence that I would say, you know, that's not we can't be sure that's true. And I wouldn't admit that I wouldn't lean on that evidence in any way. You know, I wouldn't I wouldn't reach that same conclusion. So I yeah. think this I think the series is very good. Rob's a good communicator. You know, he nailed it with the Warren Commission. Yeah. You know, uh, it, uh this wasn't an investigation. This was a fait accompli, you know, imposing yeah. uh, the issues very, very simply and, and presenting them. So, and, no, but people should people yeah. should not take it as gospel. It, it's a collaboration, by the way, with Soledad O'Brien. That's her name, right? And she is a journalist. She is a journalist. So anyway, people can check yeah. it out. I was going to say up to that point and, and his podcast drew me into it. And then I listened to some of your podcasts and, and so on um, up to that point. I had, my question had always been about the official story, but why did Jack Ruby kill Oswald? Somebody wanted him dead. It's like, how many people are so highly motivated, you know, that, that they're willing to commit murder with 100% chance of being apprehended and at best spending the rest of their life in jail? Now, and, and, and then you learn that, well, Jack Ruby was mobbed up to here. 
right? Yeah. He was totally in with the mob. And mm -hmm. and I think he already knew that he had cancer. Uh, is that right? Because if so, he'd be, what's that? It's it's unclear whether he but, knew. But if so, he'd be exactly the kind of guy the mob could talk into it, right? It's like, listen, you only got a couple of years. We will take care of your family forever, blah, 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 right? This is the kind of guy you can convince to do something like that. Now, Ruby, after he shot him, did this, he killed my president thing. And I don't know if that was true or part of that. But anyway, so I was already thinking, and of course, the mob hated the Kennedys, certainly including Bobby Kennedy, JFK's brother was the attorney general who had uh, prosecuted the mob. Um, that kind of brings us to New Orleans because Oswald spends time there. And th here there's just this weird interconnection of like, uh, of like CIA strands and anti-Castro strands and mob strands. And, yes. uh, and, uh, and by the way, I got some of this from watching this 10 uh, year old frontline documentary on this, which winds up buying the single shooter theory, but it raises conspiracy oriented questions and it, and is a, <laughs> is, is a good, you know, kind of solid. Basis. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. uh, so let me just tell you what I remember from Oswald's uh, uh, months in, in New Orleans. Now, the way Rob Reiner presents it is he's being sheep dipped, as he put it, which I, ga I gather is a term of art of like they're, they're really reinforcing this identity of him as this pro-Castro fanatic who, who then can be presented right after the assassination as basically a Castro proxy who has killed our president. Yes. And first of all, it's true that, so Oswald goes there and he, um, he does kind of, uh, you know, he, I mean, he is sympathetic to Castro. That's true. But he, he, uh, he claims an affiliation with some group that actually existed in other, but didn't have a New Orleans chapter. And I think they never actually gave him a seal of approval, but he kind of claimed it. Yes. And 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 the first thing I notice is there is a striking amount of media documentation in New Orleans of him being a pro-Castro guy. Okay. He's interviewed on the local news. He's interviewed on the radio. He's he and he gets involved in this uh in this fracas with these uh anti-Castro guys, and that makes the news. And it's like, you know, Jeff, you and I remember that in those days it wasn't all that easy to show up in the media because there wasn't much media. It wasn't like the internet where it's, you, sure, you can just, you know, you can just uh, approach somebody on the street and say, do you have a podcast? And they'll say, yes. And you say, can I be on it? And then you're there. It was like yeah. the opposite. And, uh, and, yeah. and, and, and so this is one of the things, and, and, then, and then let me add that the anti-Castro group he has the run-in with we now know is CIA backed and and right after the assassination, they get all this stuff out there, right? And, yes. and to to sell to America's news newspapers. This is going to be the story, right? And do I have it right so far? Kennedy was killed by a Castro Castroite gunman. That right. was the, the headline within hours. But before November it's on November 22nd, there were already headlines Kennedy killed by pro Castro gunman. That's how effective the CIA's propaganda preparations around Oswald were. The, the, the CIA, those CIA front groups, the Cuban Student Directorate was one, 
and another one was called the Information Council of the Americas. They generated all of the information about Oswald as a pro-Castro person, not as a communist, but as a but as a pro-Castro activist. All of that information was generated by CIA-connected groups within hours of Kennedy's murder. And that fact was systematically hidden from the Warren Commission, which made it seem like, oh, the Kennedy was killed by the communist fanatic. The brave Cuban patriots immediately denounced him as the Marxist assassin that he was. That's not what happened. What the CIA did was Oswald went to the Soviet Union. They opened a file on him. They started reading his mail. They came back. They got the FBI reports on him. He gets arrested fighting with the Cubans. They fund, they fund those Cubans. He goes to Mexico City. They take his picture. I mean, the CIA surveillance of Oswald, as you said before, it's pervasive and redundant over the course of four years. Mm-hmm. And so, to be yeah, to be to be clear, do I have the story right that the people who got all this uh kind of assertively gave this material to the media right after the assassination. It, we, d- we don't see the hand of the CIA per se, but a CIA-funded group did that, and we know that. Is that right? Yes, the Cuban, yeah, the Cuban Student Directorate was one of the CIA's favorite groups. It was funded under a secret program called AMSPEL. And there's a document from the Kennedy Library in mid-1963, which said that the directorate and its delegations in different cities, for example, in New Orleans, were receiving $51,000 a month. Okay, that's about $500,000 a month worth in today's dollars. So they were a well-funded CIA group, something that was utterly unknown to the Warren Commission and not shared with the American people. Okay. So, so, but, so Oswald what else do you want to I have some things I want to say about the time in New Orleans, but what else do you, do you want to say? So, so to look at the big picture, Oswald moves to New Orleans in April of 1963. He's lived in Dallas for... Uh, eight months before that, had trouble holding a job, having fighting with Marina. His so Russian they wife, to, his Russian bride, yeah. Yeah. So they go back to New Orleans where he had lived as a kid and he had relatives. And so um, they uh, move there and Oswald approaches the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, which was a popular campus group, which had been started in 1960 by liberal journalists who were sympathetic to Castro and thought he was getting a raw deal. And so they created this thing called the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. And it was one of the early manifestations of the new left. Um, it was a popular campus group sympathetic to these, you know, liberation movements in another country. College students were going to Cuba in the in the in the summer and all, all those sorts of things. The important thing that we've learned since Oliver Stone's movie, or another important thing is that organization, the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, was popular. It, U.S. policymakers worried about it because they were creating pressure for normalizing relations. And so the CIA and the FBI targeted the Fair Play for Cuba Committee under what we now call COINTELPRO, counterintelligence program, where you harass people, you disrupt them, and with the goal of destroying. Let's mm-hmm. be clear. The CIA targeted the Fair Play for Cuba Committee for destruction, a domestic mm-hmm. group not violent, in 1963, at the time that Lee Harvey Oswald was claiming to act on its behalf. You pointed out something earlier, too. You know, the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, when Oswald wrote to them and said, I want to start a chapter in New Orleans, they said, please don't. 
You're going to invite a, a violent counter reaction. We, we have some experience with this. Meet with like-minded people in conversation and let's see if we can develop a plan for going public with the chapter. So they kind of discourage him. Oswald goes ahead anyway, a sign that he's acting as a provocateur, not as a genuine follower. And what's more, over that summer, Oswald is, is not seen in the company of leftist people. He is seen almost exclusively in the company of anti-Castro Cubans. He's in, in and out of Guy Bannister's office right here in downtown uh, uh, New Orleans. Guy Bannister is a former FBI agent, racist, right-wing, anti-communist, anti-JFK guy. And Oswald's hanging around his office and indeed stamps some of his pamphlets with the same address as Guy Bannister had. Right, so it says, it has the name of this like committee for, what's it, Committee for Fair Play or whatever. And then it has as its address. And this, I, I just want to drill down on this a little because this kind of blew my mind a little when I was watching this front line. So it has this address of this office of this guy named Guy Bannister, who is a former FBI agent, a current private detective. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and, and an anti-Castro guy. And, uh, and it, it turns out, what, what's that? Anti-Kennedy. Anti-Kennedy. Now, he has a kind of colleague named David Ferry, right? They have a relationship who more or less fits the same description, fiercely uh, anti-Cuba uh, and, and uh, anti-Castro. And anti-JFK. What's that? Hey, JFK. Turns out, I don't know how much to make of this. There's a, there's a picture from the 1950s featuring both David Ferry and Oswald. They were both part of some civil aviation thing. Let's leave that aside for now. Ferry and Bannister were also both employed by the lawyers of this prominent New Orleans mobster named what? Marcello Marcello. And, and, and he had said he was being harassed by the Kennedy administration, deported by them. He had said he wanted Kennedy dead, basically. And, and, uh, and then to get back to Jack Ruby, Jack Ruby in Dallas was known to associate with a lieutenant in Marcello's crime organization. And yeah. so it's getting kind of weird here. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So so what it tells you about it, it, what it tells you is the story of this disaffected, you know, sociopath, uh, you know, wandering through, um, uh, you know, New Orleans uh, on his deluded path to to Dealey Plaza, it's ridiculous. I mean, it it it's ridiculously simplistic at at minimum, and it's just not true to the narrative of what happened. And you know, multiple federal agents saw Oswald in 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 running around with David Ferry, Guy Bannister, and one of them was a customs agent who was keeping his eye on this crowd as part of his job. Um, in 1963. And when he was contacted by the church committee in 1975, he said, I've been dying to tell this story that, you know, of what they, of, of, of what they, of, of what they saw of Oswald that summer. And the church committee never investigated them. You know, no, people understood, like, they just weren't going to go there because, you know, it, the story was Oswald's associating with, with, with these right wingers. Then he turns out he's a patsy. Like you said, there's organized crime connections to those same people. David mm -hmm. Fitt, Guy Bannister, Carlos Marcello did say was deported and humiliated. I mean, by Bobby Kennedy. I deported into the middle of the Guatemalan jungle in his <laughs> suit. <laughs> you know, it was designed to humiliate him. 
And yes, he hated the Kennedys. And so did so did Jack Ruby. You know, to come back to Jack Ruby, you know, he oh his story was he killed Oswald to save Jackie the the pain of a trial. That that is laughable. And I, I interviewed a woman who who worked for Jack Ruby. Um, she was a dancer in the Carousel Club, and she was friends with Ruby, quite good friends. He was very sweet on her. And she told me that she went to see Jack at, in jail after he killed Oswald. And I said, uh, her name is Barbara Morgan. She, sa she said, um, she asked, Jack, why did you kill Oswald? And he said, don't worry about it. It's all going to turn out okay. He wouldn't answer the question. And I said, well, Barbara, why do you think your friend killed him? And she said, well, I don't know. But I'll tell you a couple of things. She said, I don't think he had a choice. Hmm. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, everybody works for somebody and Jack worked for people. And I don't, I think he had to do it. And I said, well, what people are that? She said, you know, I don't know. I was a 20 year old kid, you know, dancing. I didn't, I, I didn't know. So I'm not going to, she didn't know. She said the other thing that, that, that thing about that he killed Oswald to spare Jackie. She said that was bullshit. That was invented by his lawyer. And, and, and she said he hated Bobby Kennedy. Um, so, mm. you know, uh, now, why did he kill Oswald? I mean, the most likely explanation is Oswald said, I'm a patsy. That implies other people are involved. Right. He was killed to prevent from saying who the other people who he thought were involved. I mean, yeah. that's the most likely explanation. And, you know, the idea that if you don't accept the notion that one guy killed the president for no reason and a second guy came along and killed the first guy, you know, kind of, kind of felt like it. You know, don't worry about it, folks. I mean, there's a lot of improbable JFK theories out there, Bob. And the notion that one man alone killed the president for no reason, that's one of the most improbable. Especially, I would say, in light of the fact that Jack Ruby killed him two days later. I mean, that, that just, it, it's hard to believe that he wasn't killed so that they could shut him up because he, he right. knew too much. And now, okay, so Jeff, as you know, uh, on my podcast, what I do is I go, uh, you know, close to an hour and we've been talking for about an hour for the for the public. Then we do this overtime thing where we keep talking, and you, uh, I'm happy to say, uh, have about another hour to spare. Um, yeah. So we're gonna keep we're gonna keep talking about this uh, for, and it, that's accessible to paid subscribers to the non-zero newsletter. Um, and I encourage everybody to become one. Of course, you can click the link in the show notes on the podcast app, or just Google non-zero and Substack. Uh, and then you can set up a feed where you get all of the, you just automatically get all the overtime uh, things in the, uh, for all the podcasts. And also uh, you'll, you'll get access to the paywalled um, uh, print content. Mm -hmm. uh, so I encourage that. I should also say uh, subscribe to Jeff's newsletter uh, yeah, so and uh, JFK Facts. But also Jeff, I want to give you right now a chance to say anything. You, you just want to make sure the public audience hears uh, maybe to round out what you've said or to be clear on something or whatever. Um, yeah, I, it, what I'll say is um, we have learned a lot in the past year. There have been significant revelations and major media organizations are waking up to the fact that there's a real story here and that the official story isn't true and that the government's hiding what actually happened. And so it's a big story. And this isn't ancient history. This is coming. This is happening. This is still a live issue in our politics, in our culture. So 
pay attention is the one thing that, that I would say, and especially for young people. I think one thing that we've talked about here is, you know, what's the motive of the crime? And I just want to say a little bit about that because I think it's important before we move on to more detail. And why does it matter? I get asked that a lot. And Jeff, it's a, it's a baby boomer thing. You know, a lot of people have been killed, you know, a long time ago. We got bigger problems. You know, why should we care? And I think that in larger perspective, JFK's presidency was an inflection point. And this comes kind of around to your subject, around the blob and the the, the unilateral uh, nature of U.S. foreign policy. I believe that that was really locked in when there was no accountability for the CIA after JFK's assassination. And, and I ran a thing last week. On November, December 22nd, 1963, President Harry Truman, one month after Kennedy was assassinated, called for the abolition of the CIA. Now, he never said, I think the CIA was involved in Kennedy's murder. But there is no other explanation of why he did that other than that he certainly thought it was possible, if not likely. And so Jan November 22nd, 1963, I see as an inflection point after which some options that Kennedy was pursuing, not getting involved in Cuba, rapprochement, not getting involved in Vietnam, rapprochement with Cuba, those options were lost forever. And so we took another direction in terms of a, multi a multinational empire, and we became more militaristic, and we're, we've kind of been locked into that. So I think that's why, in the bigger picture, JFK still matters. Second thing, I hope people will subscribe to JFK Facts. It's only $5 a month if you subscribe for a year. We also have a podcast. We talk to all kinds of experts about the JFK assassination. We also take questions from the audience. So it's a good deal. And I can promise you, I will have significant news stories in the coming year about stuff that we never knew about Oswald and the CIA. There is a good story there, and we are getting at it slowly. Okay. So. Great. Uh, so I hope people will stick with us uh, for the rest of the conversation. Uh, become a paid or at least an unpaid subscriber to both of our newsletters. Uh, yeah. But a paid one, you know, if partly if you just want to support the cause, if you believe in, in what we're doing, uh, but also, uh, you know, because you get more stuff. Um, I want to say, well, so we're going to drill down on a lot of things in, in the rest of this yeah. conversation. Who was Ruth Payne and why did she spend a bizarre amount of time with the Oswalds? Um, I, I also want to, I, I want to uh, just lay out one more kind of big chunk of suspicious, like, fact that's related to what we were just talking about. This is also something we'll explore more in the rest of the conversation. But the CIA already was collaborating with the mob on assassinations, namely the, assass the, the assassination they hoped they would accomplish of Fidel Castro. So there were yeah. CIA mob connections at the, in the, you know, about assassination to be already, already in motion. So I just want to add that. And, and, uh, and then we'll, uh, now we yeah, will, uh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, and, 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 and that's a point worth mentioning because, you know, when a lot of these decisions, well, was it a CIA plot? Was it a mafia plot? Well, you know, at, at the, at the operational level of institutional activity, the CIA and the and 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 the organized crime figures. I mean, they were one entity. There wasn't a difference when the CIA when the organized crime people were working with the CIA. You know, 
they were in bed together. They were they were had the same project. And so the project of assassinating Castro was right. going on between the CIA and the organized crime figures throughout the four years that they had Oswald under surveillance from 1959 yeah. to 1953. So, so those things overlap exactly. That's a yeah. good point to make. Okay. So we'll, we'll get into more of this stuff. Uh, and now we are heading into overtime. <laughs> 